Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on Wednesday, April 15th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, however. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is our third program this year in our series to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We feature topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about voting in a pandemic, the upcoming primary election in Maine. We want to talk about how the continuing COVID-19 emergency might change voting procedures in Maine's upcoming primary election and what steps are being taken to protect the election, election workers, and the voting public. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Uh, we have Allison B.A. Allison is the Executive Director of the ACLU of Maine. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. And we have Matt Dunlap. Matt is Maine's 49th Secretary of State, now serving his fourth and final consecutive term, his seventh term overall, because he had a stint with an interregnum in it. He also chairs the state's Complete Count Committee for the Census. He's our Chief Elections Officer. Thank you for joining us, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, what a moment, huh? We're trying to stay safe and stay well, trying to protect ourselves and each other. But hey, we've also got a democracy to run and elections are essential uh, to our future as a free country. We witnessed last week our fellow citizens in Wisconsin brave contagion in order to vote. Whatever the outcome of that election, thousands of voters were disenfranchised and many others endured considerable risks in order to vote. We're going to talk about how Maine will conduct itself this election year to preserve the public interest. Americans haven't experienced a pandemic of this extent for over 100 years. And ironically, that was an election year too. Matt, let me ask you, because you're kind of a historian, how did it go 100 years ago during the 1918 Spanish flu? And what can we learn from that? Well, uh, of course, you know, one of the differences in public policy it, it, that we've observed over the last, you know, couple hundred years, and really a couple thousand years, to be fair, is that the great advantage that we have today is that we know what it is we're up against. And a hundred years ago, it, it hit much harder and much more quickly. And no one really understood the gravity of what they were facing until it was completely on top of them. There was um, a, a soldier from around the Pittsfield area who was at Camp Devons, now Fort Devons in Massachusetts. He, and we have his letters that he wrote home. And he talked about how, you know, he just happened to casually mentioned that there was a bug going around camp in August. And as it happens, the first diagnosed case of flu at Camp Devons was noted by the doctors on August 23rd. By September 30th, they had 9,000 men in the infirmary, wow. and about a, about 100 a day were dying. Now, um, the election was disrupted substantially. Um, turnout was very low, about 40% turnout. It was, um, it was, it was, 
across the country, different states approached it differently. Actually, they had a social gathering ban that was lifted um, in Nebraska just so candidates could get out and campaign a little bit. Um, you know, but it, it actually did lead to some fundamental changes. It, it led to broader, more stringent powers invested in the De Bureau of Health, the Department of Health at the time. Um, and but the election still came off. Uh, we still had an election. And this is one of the things that we're always very mindful of is that we live in a country that was able to pull off a national presidential election at the height of the Civil War. So, you know, that's a pretty high standard to live up to. And what we've been engaged in here for the last month or so is examining how we're going to be able to do the same in the time of a global pandemic where the end is really uh, hard to discern at this point. So that's what we're working on. Allison, um, to tell our listeners about the governor's proclamation last week, what it said, and um, we'll ask, we have some questions that it didn't answer, but just brief people on what we do know. Well, the, uh, the, the, I mean, the governor's been issuing many orders, so there's a lot coming in. We just, she just changed her executive order to extend till May. And so her proclamation, though, gives, in terms of elections, uh, much broader authority to, to, to do whatever she needs to do to carry out the election. And so, um, you know, at the ACLU, we feel like there is a lot of, um, we're, we're delighted that the governor is taking that action. We're delighted that we have um, Secretary Dunlap, who's, you know, shepherded so many elections in the past that are already thinking about the steps they need to take to make sure that this election can, can go forward. We believe there are many things that um, the governor and the secretary have to, that they can do in their discretion um, that will allow us to, as the secretary just pointed out, continue this important tradition of holding an election no matter what is going on in this country. So Matt, the main thing is that she moved the date, right? That's, that was really the thing that we were, were hoping for was some uh, some stability in this whole process, understanding that you know right now where where we are in April, I mean we're we're sort of in the teeth of it, and we don't know what that's going to look like going forward. We had originally talked about a mechanism around absentee balloting, but then not knowing where we're going to be in June, what if the town offices aren't open and there's nobody there to either issue the absentee ballots or receive them? So that's when it became apparent that it would be wise to move the date of the primary and try to keep things as normal as possible with other tools still in the toolbox. And so the July 14th date for the election made a lot of sense. Um, it's about five weeks out it, um, from the June election. And uh, it's after the holiday, so we, don't, we won't have that to trip over if there's any recounts. Um, it's a ranked choice election, so if there's a need to do a tabulation, again, the holiday won't get in our way for that. And it's early enough that we'll still be able to handle the final tabulation along with any withdrawals and replacements by party caucuses in order to get things ready for the November ballot, which is you know, a, a whole different set of circumstances that we can't yet foresee that we're going to be working under. I mean, I know your office was um, happy to see the date move, but your thinking is not that we're going to be running a normal election, even if it's in July, right? It's really to give yourselves more time to get ready. Well, I think it, it, the, the thinking is hopefully that we can run a normal election in July. That would be the same type of in-person voting that people are used to. We've already gotten some correspondence from some town clerks who are quite nervous about their abilities to secure space for polling stations and staff to, to man them. 
So uh, those are those are different issues that we're trying to work through with individual communities. But, uh, you know, the tools that we have in place are good tools. You know, you have things like election day registration. You have no excuse absentee balloting. The primary uh, gives us a little bit more flexibility. The, the general election that we're going to be seeing in November is actually described in the Constitution as the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. We have almost no flexibility to for deal with that, that, right? for moving I mean, that. So the, the primary doesn't exist in the Constitution, so that could be moved. Allison? Yeah, I think, I mean, I certainly agree with Secretary. We have so many great tools in Maine already in terms of no excuse absentee ballot voting and all of those things. I think that what we're... You know, none of us want to imagine that this um, stay in place order, that, that our lives are going to be permanently or even for a long amount of time in this state of affairs. But we believe that actually the only way to plan to make sure our election goes ahead, both the primary and the national election, is we have to assume that we will be under these kinds of restrictions. Because at the end of the day, what do we care about? We care about every eligible voter who wants to vote can vote. And that those votes are that are voted properly are counted. So if that is our overarching goal, if that is a tenant of our democracy, we have to, you know, unfortunately, plan for the worst. And if it's if it's not that, that's fine. And so we're hoping that 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 we will be doing, we'll spending the next uh, number of months planning to do things like increasing availability of absentee ballot voting, increasing av availability of uh, reg voter registration. Hopefully, Mr. Secretary, getting you a ton more money and resources to get whatever you need to do your job, because I don't think you have enough. You, I can't believe what you do with so few staff. It is breathtaking. And to do really comprehensive public education, because I think we all know, um, although, uh, Mr. Secretary, you've done, I, I do love your particular, your, uh, your cartoon videos on explaining people how to vote and ranked choice voting, and those are great. But we know that even in the best of times, voting can be difficult for people. And so I think that, um, I don't think that we have the luxury of, of assuming that we're gonna have a normal election in the primary. And I, the ACLU absolutely does not think we can plan for that in November. So we are putting all of our effort into trying to support states uh, wherever we need to, to help them with get whatever they need to be able to increase the ability to, uh, to, to do the kind of voting that does not require as many people going to the polls. Although preserving the opportunity for some people to go to the Well, place. absolutely, Anne. I mean, I think that's a, the criti a critical point that um, our hope at the ACLU is that we will, that states around the country and then here in Maine, although we already have a tradition of this, of, of making absentee as easy as possible. Um, and that should be true this year more than it ever has been true. But yet the idea of being able to actually cast your vote is critical to our democracy and not just as a basic um, sort of like lofty idea it's very practical there are many people who can't actually don't have and address homeless populations the disabled community i know i'm speaking with our allies in the disability community it's critical that they are able to uh, disabled people are able to vote at the polls where um, the secretary of state here has done a phenomenal job training all of the local uh, registrars and all the people in the town offices to accommodate people. And it's also critical because we have an amazing same day registration law. And so, which is an, a wonderful barrier for, for young people or people who are sort of still, and I think people are moving around more than ever now. So it's, um, we hope that it will be a very, you know, used minimally because of public safety, but we think it is critical 
uh, to keep those polls open. And we'll certainly be advocating for that around the country. Matt, if, pe if people are going to be voting with absentee ballots, let's say more than they ha would normally, and normally it's like 30% of people, isn't it, that cast an absentee ballot, if, if that percentage goes much higher, if we want to encourage that percentage to go much higher, what, what can you tell our listeners that give them confidence that their absentee ballot will be handled properly and, in fact, um, tallied with the vote? Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of mythologies out there about elections. And unbelievably, we get questions like, is it true, Mr. Secretary, that absentee ballots are only counted if it's a close election? Which, you know, I, I, sometimes I don't even know how to answer that. Seriously, um, absolutely every single ba ballot is counted in every main election. So, you know, you have a colorful his history in elections where things like that used to happen. Like they take all the absentee ballots and they keep them in a box. And if it, if it was like a seven to one margin or something, seven to three margin, they wouldn't even bother count absentee ballots. They wouldn't make a difference. That does not happen. Every single ballot is processed. So for people voting absentee, they should have the fullest confidence that their, their ballots are treated in every way the same as, as the ballot of someone who shows up at the polls and casts the ballot. There are a couple of differences. There's a lot of paperwork involved in absentee balloting. So when you ask for an absentee ballot, there actually is an application that goes along with that. Now, we make it as easy as we possibly can for people. You can call your town office. You can email your town office. We have an absentee ballot request service online that is directed to your town office. You can designate a third party to, to uh, pick up your ballot and bring it back to the clerk if for some reason you have travel issues or mobility issues or you're just going to be out of town. You can have it sent to a different location so you can vote it and get it back. All the ballots have to be back by 8 o'clock on election night. That's the one stipulation we like to emphasize with folks. But there is a piece of paperwork that is the application. Uh, then the voter is given a ballot by whatever means, by that third party, by mail, et cetera. And it is sealed in an envelope with another envelope to return it in. And you open it up, you take your ballot, you vote it. Um, and then you put it in the return envelope, you sign it. And then when it is processed by the town, it's treated as if you were standing there handing it to the clerk. They announce the name and they check that name off the incoming voter list for the reconciliation of ballot inventories and for the voter participation history, which is an, a critical component of our central voter registration maintenance. Um, and then uh, the, the ballot is taken out of the envelope. It is shuffled in with other ballots. The application and envelope are clipped together and maintained as a record for about six months after the election. The ballots are then subsequently cast and counted. Um, now, eligibility can be challenged. There's a whole process for that. If, if you know, you're, if you are there observing the election and it's an old town and they announced the ballot of Ann Luther, and I know darn well that Ann Luther doesn't live in old town, I could challenge that and it would be set aside until such time as the challenge was, uh, was settled. Um, now, the voter may not know that's been challenged. And that is a disadvantage of that particular type of system versus in person. Um, if it's if you if you're doing pre-election processing, 
which we allow towns to do. And if we do have a more robust absentee ballot presence, we may expand that rather generously. Right now we give large communities up to a couple of days to process absentee ballots. They don't run the total till after eight o'clock on election night, but they can start processing those ballots uh, in advance and say it was, you know, two or three days in advance. And, you know, for some reason, you know, instead of going to Ann Luther's true town and came to Old Town, we could make sure it got to that town before the close of the polls. So in that case, it would be taken care of. But in every case, we, we treat these ballots with great respect. Um, and it, it, I, got to, I, have to, I just have to say, there's something a little bit mystical about this. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I've been doing this now for a long, long time. And during the uh, tabulation of the ranked choice election back in November, um, you know, as, as in the general election, um, you know, we had a problem with one of the memory devices from Ellsworth. And so it required us to get the original ballots. So I, I happened, you know, I live in Old Town, so I just swung down to Ellsworth, met the clerk at City Hall, got these three ballot boxes from this one ward. And I, you know, I was going to go up Route 3 um, and uh, go to Augusta. And I thought, well, maybe I'll swing in and say hello to my mother, stop and get a cup of coffee. But something was pulling at me in a way I can't really even describe. Because in the trunk of my car, I had the voices of hundreds of people. And I just felt a sense of urgency to get them to the Capitol. And I didn't stop for coffee, coffee. And my mother's visit waited for another day. Um, there's something there's something about this this work that you know we often talk about the mechanics of it, but this the, what we talk about the fundamental right to vote. This is how we govern ourselves, yep, and we're really lucky to have forward-thinking legislators and groups like ACLU and the League of Women Voters who help uh, maintain those traditions. Not to mention the dedicated Secretary of State. While we're on the subject. Um, listen, oh, well, thank you. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today, voting in a pandemic, the upcoming primary, primary election in Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Allison B.A., Executive Director at the ACLU of Maine, and Matt Dunlett, Maine's Secretary of State. This program was pre-recorded on April 15th. No listener calls are being taken. Matt was just talking about why voters can be very confident that their absentee ballots are treated with respect and cast. And I wanted to ask you, Matt, do, do voters get a receipt when they send their ballot in? Like, are they notified uh, that we got it? Or? Well, uh, they're not sent a receipt, but they can, uh, they can, you know, one of the things in the modern era, that's actually, I think I get, a, I get a little bit of a kick out of it. You know, the campaigns get lists of who's gotten absentee ballots. And people often know when their ballot has been received because the, the phone stops ringing. You know, because while that ballot is live, the campaigns really <laughs> drill in and, you know, the phone will ring off the hook. Just want to make sure that you have all the information you need about, you know, Matt Dunlap for dog catcher. And then all of a sudden the phone goes silent and you that's, Oh, the town clerk got my ballot and they entered it into the absentee ballot service right. as having been received. Cause once it's been received, uh, then there's no point of trying to, to persuade you anymore. The ballot's been more or less taken care of. Um, one of the things that we're talking about, cause what you, you talked to Allison about the resources around this. 
Um, this is a very, very strange time. And, you know, just everything around us, you know, here you've had this booming economy. Um, the, the stock market has lost over a third of its value. Um, right now, uh, the question is, how are people going to be able to pay their rent or their mortgages when, you know, I know a lot of people who string it together. You know, they, they work in retail and then maybe they bartend at night and now they're not working at all. Um, you know, the, the budgets of the federal government and state governments are cratering right now. That being said, uh, Congress has appropriated about $400 million uh, to help with the conduct of the election and the pandemic. There's a lot going on with that right now because I don't think they really thought much about it, but they put a 20% match requirement in that, in that, into getting that money. And right now, most legislatures have gone home and with very little money at hand, we got an order just before we started this show uh, that we're not supposed to spend any all other money, any any uh, capital funds. Don't spend anything right now just simply because revenues simply are not coming in. But there is money that's already been budgeted for this June primary, which is now going to be the July primary. And going forward, we know that there's a, a fairly significant outlay uh, of federal money that will be available to us with with much broader guidelines than we're used to. I mean, historically, they've told us that we can't use federal money for routine election things like ballot printing. Now they're telling us we can use it for things like ballot printing. Um, so we're looking at maybe assisting the public and the towns with costs of absentee ballots if we have to go that route of, a, say, an all-absentee election. Um, helping towns with their space considerations and additional staff. We don't really know what that's going to look like, but I, I think our first order of business is to make sure, as you said, Allison, that every Maine citizen who wishes to can participate in this process without consideration as to where they live, their abilities or disabilities, et cetera, that they can participate in the democratic form of self-governance, and that's what we're going to be working on. Allison, what are you hearing about the federal federal funding? We're hearing about the match and no match. You got to commit to the match and do the match in two years. What's going on with the match? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, and um, you know, I think that the voting rights advocates, you know, the ACLU along with the league and, and many other uh, organizations um, are, are trying to understand if we can roll back some of the, the challenges that came out of the first stimulus package. And, and Mr. Secretary, I'm sure there's the details far better than I do, but I mean, essentially um, there was federal money appropriated and there was no state match, but then the the agency that interprets it then attached sort of interpreted as like, there must be a state match, which voting rights advocates like ACLU are deeply concerned about because we understand that not all states are committed to voting rights and expanding voting rights like those in, uh, in Maine. And so putting a, a match on that it can be deeply problematic. In addition to the issues that, that, that Secretary Dunlap just raised, um, these are very challenging times for state budgets. Uh, re revenue is declining rapidly. And so right now there is, um, there is a lot of advocacy going on um, by advocates to try in the next stimulus package to reverse and clarify. Because there have been plenty of statements that there was no intent there. That was not the intent was to burden states with a cost that they are right now overwhelmed with other costs. So, you know, I'm not sure, you know, again, there, uh, you know, I can't stress too much how much voting rights are at risk in other states. Um, and so obviously there's a cohort of people that would like to uh, keep as few people from voting. Um, and I guess I just also say 
to, to in response. And, and, you know, we see at the ACLU, obviously, we work on so many issues um, and we are um, sort of seeing every day through our intake line, through our advocacy, how much people are hurting, how much resources are needed for different communities, for all of the community, in fact. And so it is no small ask to say, please put money towards an election, you know, which seems like this, well, it's just an election. It's just, you know, people come and vote, but does it really matter when people are, are, don't have enough food? And I, I, I wrestle, I, I feel that, I understand it. And yet there is nothing more fundamental to this country than the ability to, as our legal director likes to say, to overthrow your government, right? That's what makes us unique and makes us special and made us a visionary uh, country for, the, for, this, for this world. And so um, I don't say it lightly. Uh, I understand the consequences of putting money to elections, but I think um, making sure that, that the towns are resourced, that the secretary of state is resourced, uh, and it is critical. And without it, I, I don't think that we can meet the challenge that's in front of us. What are you hearing, Matt? Do you think you're going to be able to get some of that money? I think so. Um, and, you know, I think we had a, actually a, a group of secretaries of state had a conference call with the Speaker of the House, um, Speaker Pelosi, about this very topic. The California Secretary of State has a direct line to Speaker Pelosi, which is pretty handy in times like this. And I, I have to say, she took very careful notes and read them back to us. And the word is on the street that they are going to be working on this issue. You know, one of the things that people have to bear in mind about the importance of elections, you know, the, there, is, there is a real role for the citizen to be engaged here. Um, you know, we sometimes will talk about how elections work and the seamy underbelly of, of elections, of course, is getting out the vote. Because when you're talking about getting out the vote, you're really talking about getting out your vote, not the other guy's vote. And sometimes that, that can lead into some very creative electioneering at every level. And I think, you know, if you follow the discourse around the upcoming November election, there are very definite opinions about how people want to see this election come out. And I don't care if you're a conservative Tea Party Fox News Republican or a incredibly progressive neo-socialist, uh, you know, liber liberal Democrat or even more Democrat than a Democrat. Um, you have a stake in this election. And, you know, this is where the, the ACLU and the league both assume almost monumental status in being watchdogs of this process, because part of this discussion right now that we see going on around the country are the, are the debates around the very mechanisms by which people vote and the availability of those mechanisms will then often predicate who gets to vote. And if you engineer it in just a certain way, then it makes it harder for the other side to participate. Now, I'm of an opinion that if I lose an election fair and square, then I've done my job. Um, you know, and, I, and, I, and not everybody shares that viewpoint. I think that some people see the results as being paramount to the work that has to be done in an election. I think if we have, you know, 100% turnout, and they all vote me out, then like I say, that's success of a kind. Uh, maybe not the result I'd like to see, but I can sleep well at night knowing that it was done freely and fairly. Um, so I think the, the people listening to this radio show have to be very, very watchful of the debates around things like 
you know, vote by mail, um, absentee balloting, election day registration, all the things that we have fought so hard to have in place, precisely so every citizen can have their voice heard and make sure that those mechanisms are in fact maintained even in a time of crisis so that the legitimacy of the government can never be questioned because the election was free, fair, and transparent. Allison, I see you nodding there. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it... Um, and I think um, that it, the legitimacy is such a great word. Um, and I think that there have been so many attacks and so many attempts over the last few years to sort of sort of take away the legitimacy of the vote. Um, and so I think that I, I completely agree that it is critical that we that we keep an eye and that the public has a very important role here. I think that you know we hear from a lot of people that they you know they're at home, they're not sure what to do. How do they get engaged? How do they how do they participate? And you know, there are still many, many ways you can participate right now. You can make sure that uh, everyone knows how to request their absentee ballot. Mr. Secretary, I went on your website today. I requested my absentee <laughs> ballot because my town is not isn't up and running right now. And so I went right to your website and I asked for my absentee ballot. You can tell your friends how to do that. You can send them the link to the website. I will confess, Mr. Secretary, the website's a little bit cumbersome, but that's not about you. That's about the state of Maine.gov is a little tricky. So get on, you know, for all of the ERU listeners, you know, go online, figure it out, send that link to your friends. Same for voter registration forms. Although I have to imagine that anyone listening to Ann Luther's show on democracy, listening to ERU is probably a registered voter. However, if you're not, please register to vote um, and tell your friends how to register to vote and check in with your towns. I mean, people are, I think with the sensitivity that Mr. Secretary was expressing, we want to be very sensitive to the pressure that are on people and towns and they're you know, working on essential services, but in a delicate and respectful way, we can ask our town, what is your plan? And okay. what can I do is to help? Hold that thought. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Allison B.A., Executive Director, ACLU Maine, and Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State. Our topic today is voting in a pandemic, the upcoming primary election in Maine. This show was pre-recorded on Wednesday, April 15th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions at this time, but we are interested in your comments. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So talking about towns, Matt, what are you hearing from your town clerks about the challenges that they're facing? I mean, we saw pictures of um, voting places in Milwaukee where their public works department had, you know, created these big four by six foot plexiglass barriers for their election workers. Are we doing that? Is that what towns are saying they need? Well, not yet. Uh, right now, what we're hearing from some clerks is they're pretty nervous about uh, in-person voting in July even. And hopefully, by the time we get to July, you know, we see ourselves being able to run the election like we'd run any other election. But like, you know, Ms. B.A. said, I mean, you can't count on that. Um, I think it was uh, Dr. Shaw that said hope is not a strategy. Right. So, uh, you know, so we have to we have to be prepared for any contingency. And some of what we're hearing from clerks, uh, not knowing what's in front of us, uh, what happens if these major places that have become consolidated polling stations like the Cross Center in Bangor 
or the armory in Lewiston or Brunswick High School in Brunswick uh, become hospitals. And they're not available as polling stations. And, and I think that's a very, very serious question that we want to keep front and center. Uh, again, the tools we have in front of us will give us that flexibility. We have unfortunately, in my tenure as Secretary of State, become quite adept at uh, working through Apollo 13 scenarios as we're now in the, I believe, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13, which is quite, um, quite fitting. You know, so you, where you only have the tools that you have. And as much as you want to do it completely differently, there's no gas station to pull over to and get maintenance on your balky engine. So, you know, what we're hearing from towns is concerns about the safety of their staff and the public. Uh, the plexiglass thing is, is a curiosity to me. Um, I know that Governor Mills and I have talked a lot about plexiglass and she has mentioned, she mentioned it in her announcement about all this. And I, I, I would urge a little caution on plexiglass because, you know, in, in, in my argument with the governor, she said, you know, they do it at Hannaford. You know, the grocery stores are doing it. Well, grocery stores are pretty much in a chain like Hannaford or Shaw's or some of the others. They're kind of laid out pretty much the same wherever you go. You know, they have a formula. Uh, no two polling stations are exactly alike dictated by the layout of the buildings they use. So, um, you know, I think that that is, a, is definitely a resource. We certainly don't want to discount. We can't rely on it. Um, you know, the thing about in-person voting, I know the league has been very concerned about this. You know, you have people like say with disabilities, we have special tools available just for them, for people who may have mobility issues, dexterity issues, uh, they may they may not have all their senses. They may be blind. They may have other other uh, other conditions that make it more difficult for them to access a ballot. We have technology in each polling station that, as much as possible, allows those people to vote privately and without assistance. And that's something that we we actually consider rather sacred um, that people can vote privately without assistance and they can cast that secret ballot that's so important to the functioning of democracy. Um, so, and also, you know, one of the things that occurred to me as we're talking about, you know, people who are not registered to vote, when do you make that decision? Now we encourage people to register well in advance, get yourself settled, get ready, ask for that absentee ballot. Um, but people have lives, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we find as, as something of a condition under the circumstances we work is that people have lives and they're trying to get their kids to football practice um, or they're going to go grocery shopping or they have work obligations. And whenever we, everything we do around elections, whether it's drafting um, uh, a ballot question or just the flow of how things go at the polls is predicated around the idea that someone has just worked a double shift and it's five minutes of eight and they've decided finally that this is important and they wanna be a part of it. And they're not registered to vote and they want to vote. And we actually have a mechanism for those people. They show up at a polling station, they don't have their wallet, um, they don't have anything that proves who they say they are, they don't have anything with their address on it. Well, they can vote a challenge ballot. It's assigned a secret number, it is cast and counted. And then the registrar after the election will finalize the completeness of their registration process. But if there's a recount and we need to know that they're a legitimate voter, we find out in real time. 
And but it's it's always predicated around the idea that that person should be able to participate if they want to. Now I want to say that we don't encourage people to show up at five minutes of eight in a community they just moved to with nothing in their pocket and right. vote challenge ballots. But the mechanism is, in fact, there as a safeguard for them. Go ahead, Allison, jump in. Yeah, I want to say I just it's it's so good to hear. I mean, it, it makes total sense that that would be the way um, that that Mr. Secretary, you have always tried to think about how what do you predicate on it and and the idea of someone working a double shift. And I so I think that completely applies now. We need to predicate our thinking on assuming we have a stay at, at you know stay at home order. We have people who are exhausted, who are stressed out, who are have no resources, who have lost their jobs. And so, how do we make it easy for them? And you know, um, Mr. Secretary, having a long relationship with the ACLU, you, you know I will not take up an op lose an opportunity to advocate to you that maybe we could consider changing some of the things that we've done in the past. Maybe we could consider letting people uh, register electronically. That's one of the, the thoughts we've had, which we don't typically do. Or we could consider at a minimum mailing people um, the requests for absentee ballots and we could have stamps on all of those things because we know people are hurting. And so thinking about ways, you know, if we, if we instead of the person working a double shift we think about the person who's sort of stuck at home lost their job homeschooling homes well yes that's that that brings a whole another level of stress to everyone's life um and sort of you know what can we can we make some changes now uh on the on that theory and can we um you know we are in extraordinary times and so i don't know that these changes would necessarily be needed in, in normal times, but for those, so so I just have to take my moment, Mr. Secretary, and push a little advocacy on you in this call. <laughs> Matt, how much flexibility do towns have in terms of moving and consolidating polling places? I mean, there's a lead time, you know, there's a process you have to go through to move a polling place, right? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, typically, there's a, a several month process involved that it, they have to engage the public with a public notice and a public hearing. They have to meet an awful lot of criteria and then submit it to us after they after the town approves it to us for final ministerial approval before they can consolidate a polling place. We've seen a, a lot more of this in recent years um, because clerks have had a harder time recruiting poll workers. I mean, there's not only you know there's just the warden, but you also you have ballot clerks, you have ward clerks. You have people there to over to supervise ballots being cast by voters, um, and if you have you have people there to register voters, uh, all that all that type of work requires a pair of hands and a thoughtful mind, and it also requires substantial commitment. A lot of polling stations open at seven o'clock in the morning, some open as early as six. Uh, they all have to close by eight, and if you're there from six in the morning or earlier until well after eight o'clock at night to break everything down and run the tabulations or hand count in those smaller communities, uh, those folks often put in 18 to 20 hour days. And that's an awful lot to ask of people for fairly little, minimal or no pay. Um, and they've had a hard time getting folks to do that. The people that do it love it. They consider it uh, one of the, the greatest acts of public service they render. Um, more so even than jury duty, you know, they just people really feel quite strongly about it and the people that do it, do it for decades on end, but they get out of it and they're hard to replace. So you see communities, especially the larger ones, I mean, in Old Town, we had four polling stations when I first moved to Old Town for that single solitary academic semester uh, back in 1989. I've been there now over 31 years. 
I did, I did finally finish school, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm not still in graduate school. Uh, but, you know, now we have one. We've had one polling station now for several years for those very reasons. It was hard to get people to man them. Well, of course, um, for this year, a lot of the people who have traditionally done that election work are in a high-risk category and may not want to take the chance. A lot of older people, absolutely. Um, people who are often retired and have that kind of time to spend, and people who are over 60, uh, they suffer an exponentially heightened risk from the COVID-19 virus. And so, so it, you know, that's something that people are very nervous about. So is this an area in which you and the governor are considering granting some towns a little bit more flexibility in terms of polling place consolidation or moving polling places at the last moment or... Um, you know, as happened with Portland City Hall, maybe there's a contamination event in the place that you were planning. You know, you have to be able to move that polling place on pretty short notice. Repeat the question. Is this an area where you and the governor are considering giving towns some flexibility? Absolutely. And I think also it's important to note that towns have their own elections, uh, which may not be on the election day that we're talking about. And I know the governor is very concerned about that and has been putting a lot of thought into helping towns with their own municipal town meetings and elections. We've gotten questions about people running for offices like selectmen, um, assessor, and they can't circulate petitions for signatures with social distancing and stay at home orders. So, you know, uh, that's something the governor is very concerned about. And I think you'll see some more action on that along with uh, polling place consolidation changes now, that being said, in emergency situations, there's nobody in this business that's more innovative than a town clerk. <laughs> we had a situation up in Lincoln some years ago. They actually had a bomb scare in one of their polling stations. And what they did is they just picked everything up by tables. So you take one end, I'll take the other end. They took everything out in the parking lot and they kept running the election. <laughs> um, you know, um, we had uh, somebody pulled a fire alarm in a polling station in Bangor one year. And you got to love the ballot clerks. They absolutely categorically refused to leave. They would not leave. And you had the, the Bangor Police Department saying, you got to get out of here. Like, we're not leaving. You can handcuff us so you can drag us out, but we're not leaving these, these election materials unattended. Um, another clerk down in Midcoast, power went out. They went across the street to the fire station and they borrowed flashlights and they kept voting. So um, we have an awful lot to be grateful for and, uh, to, and look to leadership in the town clerks that serve our communities. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is voting in a pandemic, the upcoming primary election in Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Allison B.A., Executive Director, ACLU Maine, and Matthew Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State. This program was pre-recorded on April 15th. No listener calls are being taken. Um, what, one thing that's kind of circulating around, we're getting a few questions on this, is uh, about threats to the U U.S. Postal Service. And if we're putting a lot of emphasis on voting by mail and absentee voting, um, you know, what happens if Congress doesn't fund the Postal Service, Allison? Well, we're just going to make sure that doesn't happen, aren't okay, we? Okay, there you go. That's right. So, these, I mean, you know, this goes back to something we've been talking about is that not everyone lives in a state like Maine that's committed to expansion of voting rights and, and sort of we have 
uh, is it the highest or one of the highest voter yeah. turnouts in the country? Um, but many people do not live in those in those uh, areas, and so we're seeing an increased in or an, it's actually returned interest to sort of um, disable the powers of the United States Postal Service. And what better way to reduce people's access to voting if we're going to have to rely on the Postal Service? So, I mean, another great and important um, sort of moment you could do at home now is call your representatives and tell them how important it is that we continue to fund the Postal Service so that they can carry out the, this very important part. Um, many states have moved to mail-in voting um, with, with some, with actually quite a lot of success. And so um, we want to make sure that as, as we increase our reliance on the mail, that, that we are, um, we, our legislators are really, our you know, representatives are fighting for that uh, back in Washington. What are you hearing about that, Matt? Anything else? Well, you know, I am nonpartisan in my work. That being said, this is not new. And of course, you know, some uh, higher elected officials have said that all mail elections or all absentee elections are a threat to, you know, one party or another's ability to either gain or maintain control. Uh, and again, that's immaterial to me, you know, I, not just because I'm termed out, but because that's just not what I believe in. I believe that the people have the final say, whatever the mechanism. But if you feel that um, your ability to gain a majority or maintain a majority is threatened by all male elections, then it's an obvious solution to that particular non-problem to basically sink the, sink the Postal Service so it's not even available. I think that's cynical. Um, I hope that's not a motivating factor in this strange dialogue around the Postal Service, but I, I agree with Allison. We just have to make sure that does not happen, not only for this election, but you know, the, the world economy now moves in, in the satchels of letter carriers. Um, without it, you don't have the, you know, Amazon or the ability for us to, to do our, our other personal commerce um, and communicate. So the Postal Service is incredibly important to our society, uh, this election notwithstanding. But, you know, I, I had the opportunity last year to travel with some other secretaries on a, on a civil rights tour of Alabama. And my mother's family was from Alabama. And, you know, we all have heard about you know, the, the Baptist uh, church bombing, uh, the, the march from Selma to Montgomery. But until you see it and talk to the people that lived it, in, you know, when you, uh, we went to the memorial of the lynchings. And this one particular memorial spoke of a, of a successful African-American farmer who was hanged in 1948 for voting, for voting something that we're talking about is we're trying to make as easy and simple as possible. And, you know, yeah, 1948 was a long time ago, um, but it still speaks to the power of the individual voice in an election that someone would murder someone else to keep them from expressing it. And if that was the case, you know, a generation ago, elections are not less important now. And I think we have to be especially vigilant around these discussions about things like the Postal Service or restrictions on voter registration or absentee balloting or polling station, station access, because that is taking someone's voice away if we're not very, very careful about what we're doing. Allison? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, those are statements that make us so proud of our Secretary of State. Um, I think, you know, people died for this right. Um, and it's our job to make sure that all people can vote. And that is a nonpartisan value that is about this country. And we need to take it as seriously today. Um, we see how much this pandemic is exposing the, the fissures in our society that have been here all along. And elections are one way we make our voice heard on those basic issues. And so in the midst of you know, all of us worrying and fighting for our communities and their ability to feed themselves and take care of their families. Um, we need to also be fighting as hard for our ability to carry out a, a fair and safe election. So with that, um, Allison, what can ordinary citizens do? What would we be asking of our people right now to help out our elected officials, our secretary of state, our local officials, our federal government, what can we be doing right now to um, make sure this comes off the way we would want it to? Well, certainly to the extent that there become efforts to not fund election support, we need to push back against that and explain very vocally why it's critical that uh, Secretary of State's office, local town offices are fully funded and have the resources they need so that everyone who's eligible to vote can vote. Um, so really understanding why it matters and then expressing to your community members, your legislators, your elected officials why it matters. The other thing that we can be doing, as I mentioned earlier, is that make sure you understand how to register by absentee request your absentee right now um, help your neighbors your friends figure out how to do it send them the link explain to people how to register to vote now and make sure that that's part of your social media uh what you do every day have you registered have you you know submitted requested your absentee ballot make this part of one of our civic duties just as we care about what's happening in our local food pantry we want to care about what's happening in our local town office ask the town what do they need thinking i mean i thinking about the um it's a really interesting moment we have all of these kids who've come home you know my daughter's home from college college was canceled and she you know this summer many of the the jobs are going to be canceled many of the opportunities and so we have a whole amount of resources uh, of young people who seem to be at lower risk i mean you know, are they a resource so you know talk to your towns about what do they need what do they need for support and then of course um you know again just calling out the need for why this matters we have to talk to people about the values and and to what mr secretary was talking about that this, this right to vote is so, has been fought over in this country for so long, we can't let this, this crisis turn us back. Matt, would you add to that? What can ordinary citizens do right now to help? Well, you know, I've long been fond of the saying that the world is run by the people that show up. And, you know, we don't, we, we don't wait for perfection before we start working on a problem. We don't always have the perfect answers. And oftentimes you like what we do, what we've talked about in getting through this election is working with the mechanisms we have and the resources we have. And our greatest resource really are our voters. And I think voters uh, are sometimes misunderstood. Voters act, I think, very simply. They vote for things they want and they vote against things they don't want. And they're very smart and they're very thoughtful. And I've seen this firsthand now as a studied observer for a long time that people take their time and they ask a lot of questions and they have these discussions at lunch counters and around water coolers. 
and they take their role as citizen legislators very seriously. And if you if you don't trust the voters, then you're on you're really in the wrong business. Uh, but my advice to anybody who wants to be involved is get involved. And it does matter. Uh, people say, well, what's it matter? What's my vote matter? When you have, you know, 75% turnout and, you know, a million ballots cast, if I don't, you know, I've got stuff to do. What's it matter anyway? Well, as the chief elections officer of the state of Maine for 14 years, I have seen enough elections decided by one vote, three votes, seven votes, that I can tell you it means a great deal. It means a great deal. When John F. Kennedy was elected president, he won by an average of one vote in every precinct in the country. That's a pretty narrow margin. And I think that uh, if, you, if you don't think it's important, then come with me. Come with me and I'll show you why it's important. Um, and I, can, I could wax esoteric for a long time, but I don't want to use up what little time we have left to do that. Um, but it's incredibly important that people to participate. We are, as you've uh, suggested, starting to run out of time this afternoon. I want to give each of you a couple minutes to make your final pitch to our listeners. Um, Matt, would you go first, take a couple minutes and share your parting thoughts with us? Well, I, I think really the, the, the key takeaway is that we are working very hard to make sure that the people listening to this show and their neighbors are able to vote. But the ability for them to vote was given to them a long time ago by people who put it all on the line, whether it was people like my great grandmother who was arrested in the streets of Chicago for marching for the right of women to vote, or um, my wife's great uncle Robert who died in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, you know, these are people who fought so that we could live in a democracy and it's our birthright. And if you wanna do them any honor, you make sure you participate in the process and set the course for our grandchildren. Thanks, Matt. You got another minute if you want to. I'll yield the balance of my time to the executive director of the ACLU of Maine. <laughs> All right. Well, that gives you three minutes, Allison. So go ahead and give us your parting shot here. Oh, I mean, I, well, first of all, th thank you so much for inviting uh, me to be here. And it's been a pleasure to be with, with the secretary and to be with you, Anne. Who, you know, you've been fighting for this work for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I think it is... Um, you know, I, if you had asked me, you know, six months ago, would I be, you know, quarantined in my house doing, you know, living my life on Zoom, talking about voting rights with you all? That's not what I was thinking. I mean, we have been, you know, the ACLU have been thinking about this, has been thinking about this election for a very long time because of how significant 2020 will be. Uh, this was not on our radar, but like most things with the ACLU, we're, we've gotten very good at pivoting to a new crisis. It's often what happens. And, you know, to Mr. Secretary's points, we have a structure that people have fought for generation after generation. And we stand on people's shoulders who came before us, who were willing to take their principles and get out and, and fight about it, to talk about it, to speak about it, and to put their actions on the line. So I think in some ways we're so sort of, um, we're dealing with an unprecedented situation, but I would suggest that we're prepared for that. We're prepared because we are, we're, we're building off a history in this organization and the league as an organization, uh, activists, uh, people like Secretary Dunlap who have been fighting for this for a long time. So I think it is a function of staying, as Mr. Secretary was saying, we can make a difference. 
it's hard sometimes to feel like that. We're not in connection with each other the way we normally are. It's one of the great things about politics is you are in your community. You are talking to people in your community, wrestling with ideas, wrestling with what is best, and sort of learning about how people live. We can't do that in the same way that we would normally do that in an election cycle, but the principles are no less important. The stakes are, are just as high, if not higher. And so really keeping that sort of that fire in our belly, that passion for why this matters is critical. And so being able to be on shows like this tuning in even when we feel like we just want to tune out and watch the next netflix like show after show you know is to re-engage with why we care why we love this process why we love this democracy and doing everything we can to make sure that that as many people in maine who are eligible to vote can vote and that every one of those votes is counted Thank you. Now, this is a primary election, and so people will have to be enrolled, right, Matt? That's right. If you are uh, unenrolled, you can join a party on Election Day, um, and you can vote in either the Democratic, Republican, or Green Independent Party primaries, if there is a Green Independent Party primary in your location. Um, if you are already enrolled in a party, you will have to change uh, and your enrollment not less than 15 days before the election. So that would be June 30th would be your deadline. And um, there are two bond questions on the ballot. You don't have to be enrolled for those, right? Every voter gets that ballot. Only party members get the primary ballots. All right, good. With that little summary of what you have to do, get your absentee ballot right now, enroll if you want to vote in the primary. Um, we'll run out of time. So thank you to our guests this afternoon, Allison B.A., Executive Director from the ACLU of Maine and Maine Secretary of State Matt Dunlap. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming live at WERU.org. This show was pre-recorded on Wednesday, April 15th. You can send us feedback at news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. Our website for the League of Women Voters is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. You can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org. Coming up next, Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM.